Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Aaron Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast. My podcast is about immigrants, immigration, and everything in between. New year and new sets of incredible guests. If you're new here, welcome. And thank you for spending time with us. If you want more content, follow us on all the social media. I'm going to post more interesting contents there that are not episode-oriented, so you might want to check that out. You can listen to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, even on YouTube. Oh, and apparently 36% of my listeners are listening through Apple Podcasts. So if you do, if you could please leave a five-star and a short, sweet comment, I'd appreciate that. It doesn't have to be long. Uh, it doesn't have to be long. It could be anything. It could say five star if you want. The thing is, that's how Apple gauges the popularity of the podcast. So if you like what we, we are doing here, help us through that. It will mean a lot to us. I know you're here for our amazing guest, so let's get to that. We're going across the pond this week to talk to an amazing artist. We talk about a lot of things, we, from raising kids to this, to this social media world, to educating men about respect towards women and toxic masculinity, and of course, her art. So, without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is an artist, a wife, and a great mommy. She's a mixture of spices like a chai, but her smile is as sweet as a pomegranate, and her soul is as warm as Kashmir. Everyone, please welcome Hena Bakshi. Erin, that was, I think, one of the best introductions anyone has ever done. I'm going to steal that and use that from now on. Thank that you. That was so lovely. Thank you. Uh, I try. I, I, do so, I do my research. Yeah, you really did. Like you got in some good references there. That was impressive. Thank you. I appreciate it. I write once in a while and I pretend I'm John Steinbeck. So this is my way. <laughs> this is my way of writing. Channeling your passion. Exactly. Again, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Like truly, it is an honor to be here. I'm so excited. And I really think our paths crossed in a really unusual way. Mm. But I really believe that stuff all happens for a reason. Like, I think we were meant to be having this conversation somehow, right? I think so. I agree with you. So before we move on, would you like to introduce yourself or promote anything? Uh, yeah, sure. So my name's Henna Bakshi. Um, I am British Asian. So um, just a little, I feel like I always have to do this, like give a bit of a background on my family. So my mom is from Afghanistan and Kashmir, but she was born in East Africa in Tanzania, along with all of her siblings. Um, and my dad is from Pakistan, but I am British, born and bred, currently living in London. Um, I work full time, but I recently discovered art again. So I also paint in my spare time as well. Um, and I'm a mom to two beautiful girls. Mm, they are beautiful. I saw their pictures. They're Congratulations. Really Thank you. Thank you. I hope they're good girls too. <laughs> they, you know what they really are, but they have really strong personalities mm. which I really like so I feel like when I was growing up that was not encouraged mm. whereas with my girls like don't get me wrong they're very kind they're very sweet 
Um, they're really picking up on mine and their dad's love of social issues and making mm. a difference. So they're great at that. But they have a cheeky side to them as well. And they have a very strong-willed side. That's a good thing. It's a really good thing, Erin. I just need to hold on for the ride. Mm-hmm. And then when they're adults, those <laughs> those character traits will serve them well, right? Exactly. You don't want them, you know, you, you don't want to send them in the world being soft and just always say yes to people. No, you, you exactly. want them to be strong-willed and yes. independent women. Yes, and speak their minds. That's most important. I have two kids too, and I tell them like, hey, even though I say it, you can question my thinking. You yeah. can say that. That doesn't make sense. But when yeah, you do yeah, that, yeah. you have to make sure you have good points. Which I don't know about you. That's really different to how I was brought up. So I was really brought up with, mm. I'm an adult. So if I say something, you listen. You don't question, like even if it's a really good question. Mm-hmm. But I'm very much the same with my girls. I'm like, no, no, you can ask me as long as you're respectful and you're polite. You can ask me whatever you want. Like, it's yeah. good to push boundaries. It's good to question stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. Because, or else they'll be just robots. Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned that you grew up in London or somewhere else? I actually grew up in a county called Kent, mm. which is just outside London, not very far. Um, it's called the Garden of England, actually, because it's got really beautiful countryside. Mm. I did not go grow up in a beautiful part of Kent. <laughs> I grew up <laughs> in a, a town called Chatham, except no one pronounces the T, so you call it Chatham. 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 And you don't say butter, you say butter and water. <laughs> That's just how everyone talks there. Um, yeah, that's just where my mum's family, when they came over from Tanzania, they ended up settling actually in a, a town right next door to Chatham. So it, they're called the Medway Towns, and there's a few towns um, that make up the Medway Towns, and Chatham and Gillingham are two of them. And when they came over from Tanzania, my uh, maternal grandparents settled in Gillingham, and still most of my family lived there. Why did they choose um, the place? I think because they knew people there. I think that's Mm. what used to happen, right? It's like if you knew families, you would, that's where you would go and settle. Um, So I think they had extended family there. um, And that's, that's just where they happened to end up. Mm, Okay. You mentioned a little bit of your childhood, but let's expand that. Talk about it. Oh, okay. Um, So I feel like my childhood was almost two halves. So I grew up as part of a big, crazy, Asian, Punjabi, (laughs) loud family, which was really brilliant. I have such warm memories of growing up. Mm. Um, So my mom was one of seven sisters and two brothers. Mm. And so a big family, lots of cousins. My mom's mom, who was my nanimi, she was like... um, like the linchpin, right? So every weekend, every summer holiday, we would all go to her house. Like that's what we did. Um, And just like a basic weekend would be 30 people getting together and eating and cooking. And that was just a standard weekend. So that Mm -hmm. was really nice. And all of us cousins grew up really, really close. Some of them lived a little bit further away, but we were all a really close-knit family. 
Um, and I think as kids, you're protected from all the dysfunction as well, mm-hmm. right? So you don't know who's arguing with who or what's going on in the background. Like we had a great time growing up. So that that part of it was great. I have really good memories of that. Um, but growing up in Kent in the 70s and 80s was really hard as an Asian kid or just anybody who was a little bit different. Um, it wasn't very open-minded, um, I don't know how it compared to the rest of England at that time, because obviously we're talking about like the 80s was what, 30, 40 years ago. My math yeah. is terrible. 40 years ago. So, you know, I think things have changed, um, but, you know, it, it just didn't pay to be different. You didn't want to be different. So yeah. the fact that we had curry at home or the fact that my mom and dad talked with an accent or the fact that we had brown skin or the fact that, you know, we were part of this huge, crazy family, all the facts we didn't drink. So my family are Muslim. And that was a huge thing because especially in this country, drinking is a huge part of the culture. It's massive, (laughs) right? Like everyone goes to the pub and especially in the eighties, like there was a pub on every street corner. That's where everybody went to hang out. Mm -hmm. Um, And my family didn't do that. So in so many ways, we were so different. And that was really hard. That was really, really hard. I think. Yeah. Did you watch that movie Blinded by the Light? No. Ah, who's that? It sounds familiar. I don't remember if he's a Pakistani or Indian. I think it's Pakistani and it's just growing up in England. And then he discovered uh, Bruce Springsteen. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. I've seen that. And then his family get really upset because he starts going to the concerts and airing that is like that kind of a film that captures the essence of every Asian kid's childhood in the 80s. Like that's exactly how it was because, yeah. And, you know, like it was, you were really caught between two cultures because your family were brought up in a country where they were really connected to their language, to their food, to their community, to their roots. Mm -hmm. So when they came over to England there was a huge Asian community, massive. Okay. And that's who they hung out with. Like they didn't really integrate with local people. I don't think we really had any friends who were not part of the Asian community. I mean, obviously the kids did at school and stuff, but aside mm. from that, really not many at all that I can think of. Mm. Um, so then if you wanted to do something that was slightly like Western, like if you liked Bruce Springsteen or if you wanted to go to a concert, then the family were like, oh, my God, no, 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 That is not a good idea. Why are you going so far from your culture? You know, isn't it important to you to come on? What are you doing? So you were really stuck, I think, in between these two really different cultures. And it would be really interesting, I think. I often say to my husband, like, we were the generation that bridged that. Mm. right because our kids were born and brought up here mm. so i cannot wait to see like, what is their experience how are they going to adopt these different parts of their culture mm-hmm. because i don't think they're going to have the same friction that we did no they'll be more opening even here i've noticed that kids are kinder they're yes. nicer yeah, right? What yeah. is that? Is that like, how How has that happened? Well, because our, our parents are, you know, born and bred tough, 
right? And they have mm. their culture and they love their culture, good or bad, and they want to protect it, like you said. And yeah. then we grew up, or yeah, I grew up here too, I'll say, in a Western culture, and we, like you said, we gapped it. We got the Western and yeah. our old culture together. And then now it's our time to show these little ones how to be a better person, how to be respectful to the old ways and the new ways as well. I think that's really, really true. And I think also we have a space to explore that stuff that our parents didn't have. No. Because they came over to, and left behind everything they knew, you know, like their family, their friends, their community, everything that was familiar to them. I mean, when my mom came over, I think she was 13. That's such a tough age to move over and then to start secondary school and be, I mean, if it was difficult for me growing up different, I can't imagine what it was like for my mom, right? Like all that time before, she said when they arrived, they were wearing silk saris. Oh, no. And she said she remembers how cold it was. They were all <laughs> shivering <laughs> because they were used to this tropical weather in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, they'd come over in their finest saris and they were freezing cold. Oh, my God. But she also remembers like how she said everything felt so gray and so depressing after being in Tanzania. Yeah. And then to top it all off, like you're making, you're making a new home. Yeah. Right. Um, and quite often in a really hostile environment where people, I mean, when they came over, there were protests on the street about Asians mm -hmm. coming over from East Africa. They didn't yeah. want them. Wow. Right. Because they're stealing the jobs. Because <laughs> they're stealing the jobs and the houses and the food and everything. Oh, like you mean the job that you don't want to do? A hundred percent, you know, <laughs> the job that you don't want to do that is contributing to the country because they're paying their taxes, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think they were so busy dealing with all of that. They did not have time to think about how do I help other people? How do I be kind? How, like, how do I want to bridge the gap? Because they were just busy getting their heads down and surviving. Exactly. And because of their hard work, that made our lives better. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I always say that to my mom because she's very proud of all the artwork that I do. And um, she often shares it with her friends and then she'll tell me what her friends are saying. And her friends are like, oh, you know, your daughter's really open minded and she's so brave addressing these issues. And I'm like, yeah, but it's it's on the shoulders of you guys. You guys are the reason that I'm able to do this, you know, because you made all those sacrifices and you made that massive change. And now, now I live in a country which is open and there's free speech and you've educated me and now I have that opportunity to question all those things that you guys just didn't have a chance. No chance. You can't even think. No you chance. You need to eat. 100%. 100%. Yeah. You know? I, I say the same thing to my mom. I'm like, thank, every, every time I see her, I always say thank you for your, for your sacrifices. It sucked because I grew up without you, but... Now we're reaping the result and thank you as forever. That's so nice there and you do that. You know, I think maybe I should say that to my mom more. That's so nice you do that. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier growing up, coming from Tanzanian culture and Afghan culture, mm -hmm. but growing up in England, did you suffer from dual identity? 
100%. I think, you know what? It's really interesting you asked me that question because I've never thought about this before, but I would say it was almost like I lived a split. Like it was almost like I had split personality. (laughs) You know, like, you know, in sliding doors, but instead of like, I made a decision that was just my life. Like I just had like, I had one life with my family, which was all about the cousins and, you know, the aunts and the uncles and the love and very comfortable, very familiar. It's what we'd all grown up with and was actually a huge security for me. Like it really grounded me as I was growing up. But then on the flip side, there's this whole life where because you're not allowed to do anything as an Asian kid, everything is secret. You know, like everything else you do. So, oh, God, Aaron, like whatever it might be, whatever it might be. So, well, like when you hit 16, 17, you want to start going to the local clubs, which in Chatham were really trashy. I mean, they were the worst places you've ever seen and they were called things like El Paradiso and <laughs> oh my god that's horrible I mean? like the, <laughs> they were bad but if you lived in Chatham it was the place to go right so if you wanted to go you it was such a challenge to be allowed to do that or you would do it without telling anybody. Then invariably you'd get in trouble because somebody would see you and it would somehow get back to your aunt who would then tell your mom who would tell who, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think you just live this really different life where when you're part of a big family, it's almost like you you are responsible for the whole family, right? Mm-hmm. So you take everyone into account when you're doing stuff. Whereas when you're brought up, in a Western culture, it's very much about being independent mm-hmm. and looking after yourself and how do you progress and how do you develop yourself? And those two things are really at odds with each other, you know, and trying to figure out how those two things match was really hard, really, really hard. Yeah, for sure. A friend of mine is, her family was from India. So she told me when she was growing up here, before they go to concert, so they'll wear their normal clothes, as they, as she said. And then when they'll go to a friend's place, change to their club yeah. or bar yeah. clothes and make sure they don't smell like the mom's cooking. <laughs> did you do this? Not that I can remember. Like, I never did. You know what? I've never been one for, like, wearing really super short skirts. So clothes-wise, I never really hid from my mom, like, what I was wearing. And my mom was... Like, don't get me wrong with certain stuff. She's traditional, mm-hmm. but she's always worn Western clothes. So she never really? had a problem with, yeah, always, wow. always. So in fact, when she met my dad, when they got introduced, she said, she asked him two questions. She said, do you have a problem with me working? And she said, do you have a problem with me wearing Western clothes? Mm. And my dad said no to both. So those two things were really important to her. So I never really had to fight her over things like, well, can I wear jeans? I knew girls who did, but I never had to do that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing with my family was education was super important. It Your was, mom's a badass, eh? She, I you love know what? it. She really is, Erin. But you know why? Because her dad and her mom were badasses. That's why. Like, they were, I mean, my nan, my nanimi never learned to read or write. 
And she had seven daughters and every single one of them was educated. And at the time, that was really unusual. Yeah, coming from Tanzania. 100%. Well, and my granddad was from Afghanistan. Oh, forget about and it. And they were, uh, I mean, they, my granddad and grandma were both raised in Pakistan and the Punjab. So they came from this background where it was actually really traditional and it was really unusual to ed- educate girls. Mm. And a lot of the community said to him, like, what are you doing? Why are you educating your daughters? Like, they're just going to get married. Like that's all they're going to do. Why do they need to, why do they need to be nurses or, or teachers for that? Sounds so horrible. It, but it was so normal. Erin. Like yeah. that's the thing. So my granddad was actually the unusual one, right? Mm. Because everyone else was doing a similar Everyone else was not too worried about educating girls. Maybe not everyone, but he was unusual. And he had seven girls, right? That's a lot of girls. Mm-hmm. And they all went on to be nurses and uh, teachers. And my mom was a secretary. She was actually working on a newspaper for a while. They all went on to be fiercely independent and have careers, long, long careers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because of that, for my mom, education was really important. So although I knew girls, there was actually one girl who lived opposite my nanny me and she went to the same university as me and she was told that if they found a suitable husband for her at any point throughout her degree, she would need to leave and get married. <laughs> Horrible. Stop so your even life. If it was like, exactly. But also you're, you're doing all of this studying, like why go if you're just going to be pulled out to get married, Right. But to my mum, that was so alien. That was like, no way. You do your education and you make sure you're financially independent. I love it. Right? So I think, and now when I'm talking to you, I'm like, actually, yeah, she is really cool. Like, I don't think I'd realized how cool she was. But it meant that a lot of the stuff that a lot of girls who came from really traditional families had to rebel against, I didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. It seems like your families are very educated people and very liberal thinkers. For me, it's very important education. And I know education is very important to you too. Mm, 100%. Because I read that you did a dissertation about Colombia. I, I did a, not a dissertation. Yes, I did. Erin, you are very good at your research. I try. I did do a dissertation on Colombia. Yeah, it was on education and emergencies. Mm-hmm. I lived in Colombia for a couple okay. of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was an English teacher. Yeah, I read that too. You Okay. <laughs> this is this is uh this is very you're very good at Thank this. Thank you. I, I um, try. So, yeah, so I taught in Italy and then I was in Indonesia for a year, then Azerbaijan for two years, then Colombia for two years. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I came back to do my master's in international development and education. So I think Colombia was still really fresh in my mind. Okay. How did you end up in Colombia? So I was working for the British Council in Azerbaijan and um, it's one of the better schools to work for if you're teaching English as a foreign language, because there are a lot of cowboy schools out there. Um, and so I, I got a transfer and mm. Colombia was one of the countries that came up and I hadn't been to South America before. Um, 
And I, I was actually working with a girl in Azerbaijan who was married to a Colombian who told me to give it a go because I said to her, hey, this job has come up in Colombia. What do you think? And she was like, go, you'll love it. And I did. It was beautiful. Wow. That's amazing. Did you ever feel like you're safe there or like how was Colombia when you were living there? I don't think I ever felt in danger in Colombia. And I traveled everywhere. I mean, and I mean everywhere. I went to the Caribbean coast, to the Pacific coast, to all the cities in between. Um, there were certain places that you couldn't go by car. So I would basically speak to my students. I'd speak to my students and they'd say, no, 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 no. If you're going there, you want to fly. <laughs> you don't want to go by road. It's really, like, that's dangerous. Mm. Um, but Bogota, where I lived, was really safe. I felt really, really safe there. Like, I mean, I have to be careful in London as well. Yeah. Right? So Anywhere. In, yeah. In the same way that you have to be careful in a big city, you needed to be careful. But there weren't like any no-go areas in Bogota. Um, there were people that I worked with who did remember when it was really bad, really, yeah. really bad. And they Did said you would be in a nightclub and somebody would come in and just start shooting and nothing would happen. I mean, it was nothing like that when mm -hmm. I was living there. Nothing like this that. This is the cocaine days, I'm assuming. I, I think this is the um, the Escobar days. Yeah. yeah, Escobar days. Right. I think it was... I mean, if you looked at the British Embassy website, you couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> and they were like, stay at home. You it can walk two blocks. Don't go any further. <laughs> but if you listen to the Colombians, I mean, you could go anywhere. And it is honestly, Aaron, like one of the most beautiful countries mm -hmm. I have ever been to with really? some of the most friendliest, happiest, nicest people. But also it's just so beautiful. And I think because it has this reputation, it's not like... Um, say somewhere like Peru where I think it is really touristy because everybody wants to go people are too scared to go to Colombia so it's still relatively untouched yeah it still has the reputation of uh, Escobar I think so and I you know like if you check official websites they will tell you not to go yeah why didn't you just... think you why didn't you think you traveled like what pushed you Oh, definitely my family's roots, 100%. I don't even think I realized it at the time, but 100%. I mean, my dad came over, when he came over from Pakistan, he was in Frankfurt for two years uh, before he came to England. And he came on his own. He was on his own. Um, but I remember even when we were younger, like he always wanted to just get in the car and drive somewhere. You know, like we spent our childhood driving through Europe mm. and for people who live on a small island when you get to Europe like you have to drive for days mm -hmm. right so to get from one end of France to the other is like a good couple of days but my dad would be like no no we don't drive straight to south of France we go through Luxembourg and Belgium and Germany and we stop and even like 10 years ago bearing in mind my dad is now 75 he wanted to fly to the States and drive from Canada down the East Coast. <laughs> I mean, he, like, it's just, it's in his blood. And this I guy's never, wild. He's wild. He's like <laughs> a cowboy. 
He's like a Pakistani cowboy. He loves it. Like he loves traveling and it drives my mum insane because she's like, can't we just fly somewhere and stay in a nice hotel? He's like, no. Yeah, it's boring. <laughs> it's boring. We're taking the scenic route. Mm-hmm. And then obviously my mum, so her parents were born and brought up in Pakistan. Then they moved to Tanzania. Um, first to Deborah, and then all the kids were born in. Uh, actually, no, all the kids were born in Deborah. Then they moved to Dar es Salaam. Then they came over to England. But even when they came to England, my nanabu took them on like a tour of Africa by train before they wow. came to England. So it's like it's I, it's in our family's blood. It's yeah. just in our blood. And I wonder if also just being from a different country, you want to experience other countries like you want to know what else is out there Mm -hmm. right because you know there's more because you grew up with a different culture Mm -hmm. and you just want to know what else is out there experiencing things are so amazing 100 percent. i love that what you did is you just said like you traveled you actually traveled you know you experience it you you slept i'm sure you slept in hostels so you know what's funny because actually what I was thinking was, I don't know if this is a thing in Canada and America, but here backpacking is a big thing. So when quite often when kids finish school, so what would be high school, I guess, they'll take a gap year before university and they'll go traveling or at some point in their 20s, they'll do the hostel thing. So they'll just put a backpack, they'll save some money and they'll spend three months or six months or however long and they'll pick a region of the world and they'll go traveling. Hmm. I didn't want to do that. I don't like hostels. I don't, I don't like camping. I, I don't fancy. like any of that stuff. You're a fancy I'm girl. I'm not fancy. I'm not <laughs> fancy, but I like my home comforts. You know, I like my home comforts. And even now, like tons of our friends take their kids camping and me and Jewel, my husband, are like, that's our idea of a nightmare. Like we are yeah. not doing that. Um, so backpacking is a huge thing. So I knew I wanted to travel, but I didn't want to backpack. I didn't. And I think also like the thing with backpacking is it's quite transient. So you're in a town for a couple of days, but then you leave. Mm. And I think I wanted to actually live in a country and have it as a base. I wanted to experience life living all the time in another country, which backpacking that. can't really give you. So um i did literally like a four-week intensive certificate course and that's it you're qualified to go and teach english abroad Hmm. just because we're lucky enough to speak english (laughs) right which is you know that's one of the things that drives me crazy is when people talk about immigrants generally speaking there's there's two different types of people so the first kind of people are like the ones who you were poking fun at before oh man they come over they take our jobs they take (laughs) our houses we've not got enough we've not got enough for everyone and then the other kind of people they kind of annoy me even a little bit more because they're like there's a kind of pity right it's like oh it's nice that's nice as you're coming over and you know you're gonna you're gonna try to build a life in a new country and it almost like a bit patronizing I think but when I tell people that I went to teach abroad British people will be like oh my god you're so brave like you <laughs> went to that country all by yourself and you set up a new home and I'm like yes and that's exactly what all these people 
are trying to do. So what's the difference between me being super brave and actually these people who are coming over who are going to have a much harder time because they're not going to set up at the British Council and be put into a hotel and then somebody help them find accommodation and be given a job. You know, these people have left everything behind. They've had a much more dangerous crossing and journey to get where they want to get. So what, you know what I mean, Aaron? I'm like, what's the difference? What's the difference between me? What makes me so brave? Yet you think this other person who in the middle of the night has crossed the English Channel to <laughs> try and build a home back. here. Yes, with a kid on the back. It's so strange to me. It's so strange to me. Well, maybe because you're one of them. You know, you're English. And we can go anywhere yeah. we want, right? So we're allowed to go wherever we want. Yeah. Not the ones that are just going to steal the job and rape women and take away everything. Yeah. Even here, like, I've met people that are like anti-immigrants. And I'll tell them, we're friends. I'm an immigrant. Are you, <laughs> do, you, do you not like me? And, and then they'll say, you know what they'll say? They'll say, no, 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 not you. You're good. Yeah, right. You just haven't met them. They're probably a better yeah. person. I'm a piece of, you know what I mean? It's ignorance. Yeah. a hundred percent. And it's almost like that's meant to be a compliment to you, right? That like, oh no, but you're you're different to them. And it's like actually, no, I'm not any different to them at all. Mm. They're just I'm just that that's my people. They're my people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, oh, I was going to ask you, you, you mentioned you're Muslim, the hijab, is because I haven't really spoken to someone that is educated with it. Is it based on religion or based on culture? What, what is the hijab for? Because some women use, where is it? And some doesn't. Yeah. So I, I'm actually not very educated about the hijab. Compared to um, me? Yeah. Yeah, okay, <laughs> maybe. But I was born up in a Muslim family. Like, I have a head start, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so as far as I know, there is nothing in the Quran about the hijab. It's very cultural. Mm. Um, nobody in my family wears it. So my nanami used to always cover her hair, like her head with a scarf. But you, I mean, you could see her hair underneath, but she would, she would cover her head. Um, on my husband's side of the family, I have three sisters-in-law who do, and they do the full, so the hijab is the one which covers, you can just see the face. Mm. Um, they wear that out of personal choice. They didn't wear it. Um, in fact, two of them didn't wear it when they got married. Um, it was later in life they chose to wear it. So as far as I know, it's cultural more than religious. I mean, there's no stipulation that you need to, to wear it in the Quran. It just says you need to dress modestly. Um, even when I was younger and if we used to go to the mosque, I would cover my head with a scarf, but I didn't need to like make sure no hair was showing. Okay. I, I remember I, when I was new here, I mean like fresh off the boat, as they say, and I was working with these Moroccan women and one of them went in the back where... The boxes were, I didn't know she was there. So I went there and she was fixing her hair. And then she's like, she just screamed. She's like, oh, like I did something wrong, you know? And I felt so bad because I was just, I didn't know she was there. And I said, I'm really sorry. I didn't know that you were there, you know? Like, 
I didn't really see anything, to be honest, because I was so afraid. And she's like, what did I do wrong? You know, because obviously it's not my culture. Yeah. She's like, oh, you're not allowed to see my hair. And I said, for me, it's like, it's just a hair, you know? Like, it's only for yeah. my husband. I said, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you or anything. I didn't know you were there. And trust me, I don't care about the hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then was she okay? Yeah, she was okay because I, I guess mm. she felt that I was very sorry about it because really, I didn't know she was there. Yeah, and it's a mistake, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, but I just, I, I was just really, I've just felt bad about it. And yeah. Also, there's another question I want to ask you. I've asked mm -hmm. a few Indian friends of mine, but they can't really give me a substantial answer for myself, at least. Like, why is the word Paki became a very derogatory word and not Indian or or something else? You know what I mean? I don't know if you guys do that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I used to hear that all the time. Are you <laughs> kidding? Like growing up in Kent all the time. I mean, if you got in an argument with any kids in the playground, which invariably you would because you were kids, the mm -hmm. first thing would be like, shut up, Paki. <laughs> Go home, Paki. Go home. Why, and then why? as we, I mean, I guess it's it's short for Pakistani, obviously, but all brown people got lumped into it. I mean, my friend from Yemen got called a Paki, <laughs> and I think she shouted back something like, "If you're going to be racist, at least get my country right." Yeah, but it's just kind of applied to all all brown people, and it was it was really horrible. Like it's I still when I hear that word because my husband is actually Bangladeshi, mm. and he has used the when we first met, he used the word obviously not in a like insulting way. He was just referring to something, and I felt my whole body went tense, and I was like, "What did you say? Like, don't PTSD. say." How could, yeah, 100%, like it took me back to that time because I think when you, when you heard that word, Erin, like it would stop you in your tracks. It would just stop you in your tracks because you were like, well, if you're going to pick on the color of my skin, this is the color of my skin. And actually I am a Paki because that's where my grandparents were born and that's where my dad was from. So you knew it was like an insult to make you feel different. Mm -hmm. But there was no comeback. Like the equivalent used to be, um, you would call white people honkies. Have you ever yeah, heard of honkies? It's so boring. Oh, it so just doesn't have the same effect. It just doesn't have the same effect. And I remember when they would say it, when a kid would say, oh, you're a packy, my initial response would be, is that all you can come up with? But also I would just be like, I don't know what to say back. Nothing. What can There's I say? Nothing. You just can't say anything back. Like it's when then, some people, sorry, for when someone calls me Chinaman, and I'm like, what? People call you Chinaman? Yeah, it recent. <laughs> it happened recently. We went for a bike ride with my uh, friends, and this Quebecois guy. I mean, he's from the from the bundocks, as they say, you know, from the sticks. And like, oh, uh, he spoke in French, but he pretty much said like, oh, you guys Chinaman? I'm like, no. That's not even where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, was he, I, was I he saying it as an insult to you, or was he just like just well, really? It's uh, just ignorance, right? Okay, so he's not kind of saying it 
as a slur. He's saying it because he feels that's an acceptable way. Yeah, but to, to be honest, somebody. nothing can. No one can say something negative to me that, according that based on my race, that bothers me. I'll just laugh. Racism makes me laugh, cause it's so dumb. Cause it shows the person that is racist that how much how dumb that person is. It always That's every time so true. every time somebody becomes racist to me or makes fun of my my uh, my skin color or my uh, accent, I, it makes me laugh so hard. Cause I'm like, oh, you're dumb, dude. I won't say That's... it, but you know what I mean. Like, ah, uh, I used to like you, but now you're dumb. That's such a good response. I mean, that's the best response to have. I don't have that response. I get really angry. <laughs> I blame it on my Afghan Punjabi roots, but I get really angry. Mm. And my sister-in-law, actually, we were talking about this the other day because there used to be something when we were growing up. Have you ever heard of butt butt ding ding? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> So, but but ding ding was another insult that they, that we used to hear in the eighties because I think to English people <laughs> I can't even talk about it without laughing. But but ding ding was like how they heard the Indian language. So sometimes, <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing <laughs> and so dumb at the same time. <laughs> so, like, sometimes when they see you, they'd be like, oh, bun, bun, ding, ding, bun, bun, ding, ding. And you'd just be like, that's not even what our language sounds like. I'm but so... my sister-in-law was telling me, we were talking about, like, being called packies and stuff. And she was like, yeah, one time um, I was in the car when I was younger and me and my friends were driving around and this car opposite pulled up, like, next to us at the traffic lights. And they were doing all the bun, bun, ding, ding, bun, bun, ding, ding. So they opened up the, uh, what's it called? The sunroof. Mm. And they stood out and started doing like Bollywood dancing. <laughs> I was like, hey, that is like the best response, actually. Right. How much better is that than getting angry? So when you're saying like you just laugh, I think now, Erin, it would be different. I think now if somebody said it to me, I would have a really different response. But I think growing up, it was it just felt really isolating. Like you felt really on your own. And, you know, if I was out with all of my school friends, I was pretty much the only Packy. So if somebody said Packy, it was just referring to me, right? You know what I mean? They weren't yeah. saying it to any of my other friends. Mm -hmm. And then the thing was, as we got older, it became like you wouldn't get like the direct insult anymore, but people would be like, oh, I'm going to the Packy shop. Yes, they still say this here. I'm like, what? You can't, don't say that. Like, that's a really bad word to use. And then they'd see me and they'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I don't mean anything by it. I just call it the packy shop. Yeah, because like, mostly don't. people that are South in South Asians owns, even here, most of the depreneurs are either Asians, uh, yes. Southeast Asian or South Asians. Yes. And they used to call it a corner shop. I don't know if they call it, they probably call it something different there, but it was always... The corner shops. And back then, shops were like, they used to shut at five o'clock at night in the evening. Why? And weekends, just in England, like the shops okay. used to close. Wednesdays used to be a half day. They used to close at like one in the afternoon. That was it. You can buy anything. Sundays, forget it. Like nothing was open. Hmm. The only shops that would be open would be the corner shops. Okay. Yeah. And they that... were everywhere. 
Yeah, I know. Like, like I said, alluding to that is like they use still some people still use the word. Oh, I'm gonna go to the pake store or pake shop. Here we call it depano because it's French. Right, but some right. English people mm-hmm. says it the, the pake, which is for me. I, obviously, I cannot tell how a Pakistani person feels or South Asian person feels about it. For me, I would feel proud because it means that person owns a business. That means yeah. that person is a hardworking, tax-paying person. And what have you been doing with your life? How come you started at, let's say, you start at 10. If you're, if you're white, you start at 50, let's say. We're trying to go to 100. And this person from, from negative zero came to a different country and surpasses you. Mm. Don't you feel bad that that person surpasses you? He also got them business he owns probably owns a house and you're just whatever you're doing Aaron that do you know what that's like warmed my heart seriously like that is such I love the way that you put positive spins on all of this stuff where I'm over here getting really angry like I'm ready to fight somebody (laughs) or at least maybe not fight somebody I'm ready to like do a painting or something right to Mm. channel it into that but I love that because basically what you're doing is you're taking their power away Mm. right you're taking away their power to make you feel bad because you're basically saying your words have literally no value to me like it doesn't matter what you're saying because this is my perception and I love that you put such a positive outlook on those things I just think that's such a a cool quality to have thank you don't make me sound like I'm smart guy I just like I just thought you of it. I'm like, okay, guy, well. Aaron, you are pretty smart. Like, I think that is really smart. I really do because I think getting angry actually is like you, you're almost kind of giving them some kind of, um, you know what I mean? You're giving them some kind of influence over your life. Whereas actually, I should be opening that sunroof and just doing a little dance. The dance. I or, love the dance, yeah, by the way. I love right? the right. I love the I love the sari. I love the collar. Like, why not? Hell's yeah. yeah, dude. Hell's yeah. Yeah. You know what? Me too. Now, mm. not when I was younger, but now I love all of the clothes of saris. I love saris. It's one of my favorite things to wear if we have a wedding. But when I was younger, I used to hate it. <laughs> hate it. I mean, first of all, they're quite uncomfortable. Like they're not the most kid-friendly clothes. Mm-hmm. But also, I would just ha- I'd hate like our neighbors seeing me walk to the car oh, in yeah. my Asian outfit. I'd hate getting out at the other end, and you'd have all these people looking at you like, oh, "What are you wearing? Is, That's it, a is, bit- it, is there a costume party? Is that costume? That's <laughs> it. I'm like it's not a costume. These are normal clothes. Um, but yeah, it's so funny how you come full circle, and I think part of that is also living in London. Because I don't know what it was like growing up in London in the 80s. I know that there's obviously like there were a lot of issues with like the Brixton riots. And I know that a lot of stuff happened. But now London, it like it doesn't just have diversity. It celebrates it and mm-hmm. it embraces it and it's really proud of it. So it is a city that includes everybody. And it's proud of the fact that there is a shop here that sells food from this part of the world and another shop here that sells food from this part of the world and this guy's walking down the street talking in a language that is not English and Mm -hmm. he literally does not care nobody cares you know like my kids have friends 
from Japan, from Spain, from Greece, from everywhere. And they're so proud to say where they're from. Yeah, they love it. They love like t- teaching their friends Punjabi words or saying they had curry for dinner. And because here it's really cool. It's like it's a fun thing that you're yeah. different. I like that. And I, I think like that. That's it's a really cool city. It's a really that's amazing. Yeah, Montreal too is the, pretty much the same thing. So we we're talking about this earlier, but I want to talk to you about racing girls in a world that is, I don't know, man, lately world has been crazy mm. especially with young women yeah how are you preparing them for this world and what's your plan to tell them well that's such a good question um it's a really big question mm-hmm. i think i am taking it a day at a time So I think, like we were talking before, I can't even remember if this was um, before or after we started recording, but I, we were saying how it's really important to teach them to be independent and mm. to speak their mind and to have an opinion and to question what's happening around them. So that, I think, for me, is a huge part of just teaching them how to deal with the world, like question everything. Ask if you don't know, but also don't just do something someone tells you question everything and speak your mind don't let somebody call you my eldest especially gets called bossy a lot <laughs> and I used to get called bossy mm. and I did not like it so I always say to it you know what you're not bossy you're a leader and people mm-hmm. don't know that yet but that's what you are so don't listen to them but I think aside from that it really Aaron it's a day at a time because they are growing up in such a different world yeah. to the world that I did like don't get me wrong I feel like you and I had our own challenges but I think they have a whole different set of challenges so just one example is social media oh my god I yes. did not grow up with social media I mean I got a hotmail account when I was in my early 20s I got Facebook when it was still like a kind of friends reunited thing where you'd like stalk some old school friends of yours to see what they were doing. But now you have Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, all of these things. And I still have not worked out how I'm going to manage that because whatever they put out there is going to be there forever in the public domain. And if I had had that, and I feel confident I can say that if you had had that, And we had put stuff up. There would have been times that would have been really challenging because we did lots of stuff, but it was all offline, right? Oh, yeah. Stupid shit. The, say, the things that I say. Yes. Oh. Or like even like the opinions you have or the views that you have or just like the peer pressure of growing up to be and look a certain way, all of those things, that kind of stuff. I'm like, I don't even know how I'm going to manage that. I will deal with that as and when it comes up. But with everything that's been happening lately, so I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about the Sarah Everard murder, mm-hmm. which was huge and it's really shaken this country massively. And yeah. then shortly after that, there was um, just about a month ago, actually, there was a teacher who was uh, 26, 27. She was really young. She was Asian. She got killed just outside her block of flats. Um, they've arrested a guy but we still don't know the full story. So when you hear stories like that 
And this was, I believe, Friday at 8.30. So as with Sarah Everidge, you know, these, these things are not happening to women at three in the morning when they're, and even if it was three in the morning, that is still not okay for those things to be happening to women. But you know, this is like 8.30, nine o'clock. They're being as safe as they can. Um, I think there's a huge dialogue to be had around that, but I think we need to shift the focus onto boys and men because I think every time we have that conversation, the conversation we have is, right, how can women keep themselves safe? Actually, women aren't doing anything wrong. It's men who are attacking women. So actually, how do we educate men? How do we give them, how do we educate boys to be respectful? How do we teach them consent? How do we encourage boys and men that when they are struggling emotionally or mentally it's okay to talk to somebody so that they do go and look for that help how do we make sure we have the mental health services that are funded so that when they go to get that help there is somebody there to help them because I think as much as women struggle with equal rights and they struggle against the patriarchy and misogyny I think boys and men really struggle with toxic masculinity. I think there's certain expectations of them to be a certain way. And I think it's just as stifling and difficult for them. So I think we need to shift the focus a little bit more into boys and men. And, you know, just little things like when Sarah Everard was murdered, I was speaking to one of my male friends who couldn't believe that every time I come home when it's late, I will have my phone in my hand. I will never have both my headphones and I'll always take one out. I will always cross if I see a guy. When I turn onto my street, because there's no street lights on my side of the road, I will put my keys in between my fingers. And it's just something I've done. Ever. All girls do it. All women do it. And when I told him, he was like, what? You do this? What all the time? And I was like, yes. And how crazy is this that we're now having this conversation? I have done this my whole life. My husband didn't even know that I do this stuff. Mm. Like he knows that sometimes I call him on the way home to just speak to him. But even he didn't know that I do all of this stuff. So I think just by having the conversations, I think, and these are good men. These are not like weird, macho, they've got issues men. These are like my husband and my friend. They don't even know that women do these things. So I think men are slowly starting to become aware of what the issues are. And I really hope, like we were saying earlier, that this future generation is kinder. I think the boys also will be kinder. And they're also going to be brought up to accept that it's okay for them to be whoever they want to be, just in the same way as it is for girls. And the last thing that I'm doing is I'm taking them to a boxing class. <laughs> I so love that it. is the last thing I'm doing. So actually mm-hmm. next Tuesday mm-hmm. I've booked them in and this is not like a nice boxing gym. Yeah, this is sure. like a grimy community inner city gym. I love it. And we are going to go and we are going to put on our boxing gloves And my older one, who's eight, she's quite a tomboy. (laughs) My little one, who's like five, nearly six, you've never met a bigger princess. I mean, she's all about like (laughs) unicorns and sparkles and her voice is like this. She's really gentle all the time. So I really want to see her put on some boxing gloves and just start punching some stuff. Yeah. 
She might like it. She might enjoy it. I love it. She, That, that's yeah. amazing. I love it. Yeah. That's why I. Yeah. I'm not going to be a hypocrite when I was growing up. You know, I came coming from a macho culture. I'm like, yeah, girls, girls, girls. But one thing happened to me that really like impacted me. I had a friend, and she is a beautiful young lady. And we used to go for lunch once in a while. You know, well, we go to the cafeteria for lunch, and there are mac microwaves to heat up your food. So one day we went down, and. You know, I put my food in the microwave. She put her food in the microwave, and we're standing waiting for the food. You don't, you won't believe how much men was surrounding this girl, saying hi. They were nice. They were just saying hi, whatever. But the amount of men, easily ten guys, on her talking, just talking, just being nice. Mm. And I stepped back. I literally stood back and looking, watching her. And I said, God damn, I'm tired just looking at her. <laughs> just looking at her to just swat this yeah. attention that most likely she doesn't even want. She just wants to get that food, and I'm like, "Holy crap, man! Man, girls are strong, man. I can't do this." Yeah, like concert, and that's just a moment. Imagine her yes. walking down the street, like you said, mm. man. She she needs knuckles. She needs bear spray. She needs everything. Uh, yeah, and it's tiring, right? That's the thing. Like maintaining that level of protecting yourself in whatever way whether it's because you're walking down a dark street or whether it's because you're microwaving your food and there's loads of guys around you and all you want to do is warm your food up hmm. it's so exhausting it's mentally so exhausting it's 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 really hard to explain I think because if you were to ask your friend what is it like she probably wouldn't be able to tell you no. because she does it it's second nature to her mm -hmm. That's just how things are for her, and I think now the good thing is with some of these things that have happened, we're having conversations we've never had before, and that has got to be a good thing mm -hmm. because if you're not having the conversations, nothing is going to change. Nothing. It's good to go out and rally and whatnot, but really, mm. nothing. That it doesn't really do anything. The best way is to have conversation with people, people that has different values, different point of view and mm. that's till we figure out oh she's making sense oh he's making yeah. sense till we figure out the middle that's why immigration is good that's what right? immigration does yes Erin that is exactly what it does as long as the people both sets of people are open to having those conversations right that's the thing I agree I agree so we're talking about life and everything but this is one of my favorite part of talking to you is your art First of all, I don't think I even said it. Thank you so much for the art. I really love it. Absolute pleasure. I, I it couldn't have gone to a better person. And I think um, I said to you earlier, the weird thing is our paths were meant to cross, Erin. Like, I don't know how. And I don't know why. But I, for some reason, you're my four, 400th follower, I think. That's right? what you mentioned, yeah. I didn't do it for 100, I didn't for 200 or 300. I've just hit 500. I didn't even think about doing it. But for some reason, I remember saying to my husband, when I've hit 400, whoever is my 400 follower, I'm going to send them this immigrant print. And then when you were my 400 follower, I was like, no way. <laughs> What, an immigrant's life? What is this? Like, I've never heard of this before. Huh. Like, it couldn't have gone to 
a better home, mm. right? So that, but there was something really special about that because I haven't done it for any other of my hundred numbers. Oh, thank you. you know? Thank you. So, I really appreciate it. I, when you said it, I'm like, why? I always, yeah. people have sent it? me stuff. People have <laughs> sent me stuff. Uh, uh, some people send me chocolates, a pair of shoes, stuff like that. But no. when you, I'm a big art <laughs> fan. That's why. Ah, nice. That's why when you said, no, nice. no way, dude, no way. Like, uh, and I, I always say to my wife, I said, I will not put anything on our wall unless it's an artwork that a, from the pers a person that I know. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, it has to be someone that has connection to me or else I'm not good. It could be Picasso. I don't care. Well, maybe so you Picasso. Would like <laughs> <laughs> it's a million dollars. We're not going to say no to that, you know. You make an exception. You know, but yeah, I like buying artwork from people that I know or someone that I I am connected to somehow. Yeah. That's why when you said it, I'm like, oh, thank you so much. Not to mention you're giving me something that you work hard and it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Oh, I love the I love the butterfly. I love the colors. You, that's one thing I love about your art is the simplicity and the colors. Oh, thanks, Erin. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely the simple is the simple is definitely a part of my style, a hundred percent. Yeah. So let's talk about Brown Girl Art. Can you tell the story on how and why did you start Brown Girl Art? Yeah, sure. So I actually loved painting as a kid. I loved it. Um, and we used to learn in this uh, wooden loft room, which in my memories is always sunny. But we live in England, so definitely it wasn't always sunny. But I think that's just like a reflection of how happy I was in this room. But being the kid of hardworking immigrant parents, and there was no way I was going to be an artist. <laughs> I mean, there was just no way. My mom and dad would have died. They would actually, I mean, first they would have killed me, then they would have died. And then they'll um, revive you and then kill you again. <laughs> just so they can kill me a second time, yeah. There was just no way, you know, there was just no way. To them, it, you know, they'd made all these sacrifices and they'd worked really hard. So I was going to be either a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah, I literally <laughs> grew up with like three aunts and my mum telling me to be a doctor and the other three aunts and uncles were like, be a lawyer. So I actually just forgot about art, completely forgot about it until about two years ago. And it was really good timing because it was about a month before lockdown happened, the first lockdown. I thought, let me just order some canvas and some paints and I just started painting and I just haven't stopped since and then when lockdown happened it gave me time which I never had before to actually be at home and paint and just connect with it again and then when George Floyd happened because that happened in the May of um, the year of the first lockdown I think that I mean around the world the the shockwaves that it sent and so many people connected with what happened to him I mean my mom I remember got really emotional my mom rarely gets emotional but she got really emotional just reliving all her experiences since she'd come here and she was like we just accepted that as mm -hmm. a part of life we just accepted that's how we needed to be treated mm -hmm. so all of these conversations were going on and I was in a cabin a wooden cabin in Norfolk which is in the eastern middle bit of England, really beautiful. And out of nowhere, I had an idea to paint about my experiences of racism 
growing up. So my very first painting for Brown Girl Art was me as a schoolgirl. And I had these red glasses that my mum always used to pick out and a fringe. I mean, it was my most iconic look. I had <laughs> never hit the heights of that look. <laughs> and it was a painting of just a face with the glasses and the fringe and no face because for me, although, so I had the speech bubbles, right, of all the different racist things people used to say, but actually that wasn't just my experience. That was that, that could be any Asian kid growing up in the 80s, boy or girl. So I didn't draw a face, much to my eldest's confusion. Um, she's like, Mama, why is there no face? Like, why haven't you drawn the face? So I did that painting. And you know what, Erin? It was so cathartic and mm. therapeutic. And at that time, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. But I just enjoyed painting it so much. And I felt so good afterwards. I just couldn't stop. And I haven't stopped since. And I think it's a, a really good way for me. You know, they're like the whole Punjabi Afghan thing I keep talking about where I get angry. Mm -hmm. I read something in the news and I get really angry about what's happening wherever, right? Like in Palestine or wherever. I find painting is a really good way to channel that mm. in quite a healthy way. I, I mean, it's it. definitely better than other ways of coping with it. And then when I started sharing the paintings, I think just from the response I got, I realized it was resonating with other people as well. And that was a really powerful thing because I was like, mm. okay, well, I knew these paintings made me feel emotions because I pour all of my emotions into it. But now there are other people who are reaching out saying, this is really amazing. Like this reminds me of this, or this is the experience that I had, mm -hmm. or I really get what you mean by this painting. And that was incredible. That was just really cool. Well deserved. I'm, I mean, the moment I saw your page, I'm like, yo, this is the shit. I love this. I'm, I just like, I, I love the simplicity <laughs> of it. <laughs> Red. It's it's I love the sim I love the color because I, I love vibrant colors. If you look at if you see my right. my photographs, it it's always vibrant. That's my that's my style. It's always nice. saturated, you know. And I just I love pastel the pastel color that you used to. I just everything I love it. It's just oh thank you. I'm like I like I need to talk to this person. Whoever this person, I need to talk to this person. And I love what you said that when you created the art. You were just creating out of your, from your heart, not mm. knowing how it's going to impact other people, you know. Mm. I'm going to, like with me, when I started the podcast, I just want to talk shit, to be honest. <laughs> That's all I want to do. I just want to yeah. talk, talk shit. But I always remember when I did the first, first episode, I was literally shaking. My body was shaking like this. Because I was so I, I was so scared, adrenaline was going through me. Mm. I don't know what's gonna happen, and I was talking to a really good friend. I mean, I've known this, my, I've known her f since twenty years, I'll say. Mm. But I was still shaking. But I love the moment I finished. I said, "That's it. This is it. I'm supposed to do this," and and I loved when I connect connect to people like you cool people like mm. you and say like oh you're doing good stuff like and i'm saying mm. i'm just talking shit dude i'm not doing anything special but people will say you know like oh this is my experience and that and i, I think it's really important that's why i still continue doing it and like i said mm. you need to continue doing your thing i mean i love it 
Thank you. Yeah. And I think, you know what, it's exactly like you say, I think we have this inbuilt need to connect with people. (laughs) I think that's what it is. And I think when I started painting and especially when I started getting commissions, I was absolutely floored by the fact that people were sharing sometimes really personal stories with me. And it's such a privilege, Mm. right? To be able to, for somebody to share that with you and then for you to do something with it in exactly the same way you're doing, right? Like the stuff that you're speaking to people about, this is not your average small talk. Like I've listened to a few of your episodes. Thank you. And you are getting into like the nitty gritty, like actually what is everything about? And people's stories, like the things they're sharing with you, I just feel like it's a real privileged position to be in, to have people openly and willingly share those stories with you. Mm -hmm. And now you're such a pro. I mean, I don't see any shaking. I don't see any. This is like slick. You know, this is impressive. Yeah. But it always happens that before I get on, I kind of get like scared a little bit. Just a little bit. Like, oh, what if she thinks I'm dumb or what? Like, you know, anxiety, right? But don't you think that's also means that it's still it's still like your passion and yes. it's still special? Yes. Right? And, uh, and it's uh, still important enough. Yeah, I think right? so. It's important that I don't stop. I just, I, it's scary, but I'm going to do it anyway. I don't exactly. care. Exactly. And I get exactly the same every time I share a painting. <laughs> just before I post it, right? I'm like, what if people think this is really rubbish and they out me as like some complete amateur, like, ah, but it's exactly like you say, you need to be a bit scared. I think like you need to keep pushing outside your comfort zone. You Mm -hmm. have to. I completely agree. Yeah. And you have like your conversations that you have, Erin, are like, they're incredible. Like I feel like you. you just get to know people so quickly on such a deep level and mm. people end up sharing these stories that actually, if you were to meet them, it would take you years probably to hear some of these stories and you hear it all in like an hour. It's amazing. Thank you. I I like to think so. I like I, th- I think uh, I'm doing the job properly. I, but to be honest, I'm just nosy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not scared Me of asking. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not scared of asking questions. But yeah, I mean... I just, I just love it. I love, I love creative people. I think, like, I think you said something about art and changing the world. Yeah. So I, that's, I mean, it took me a little while. That's not what it was at the beginning, but definitely, I think what I like to think of my art as is art for change, hmm. because I think people do connect with it, and I think it's a way to change people's hearts and change people's minds in a way that conversation is sometimes a little difficult. Hmm. You know. And I really hope that sometimes it makes people look at it and think, okay, this is a slightly different take on what I have. I think part of the issue now, and again, I think it's to do with social media, is I think people become have become really entrenched in their own opinions. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? <laughs> like really entrenched in their own opinions. So that when, and so basically you go on Instagram or you go on Facebook, and you have whatever opinion you have, mm. right? And then you see more and more evidence that your opinion is correct because social media is set up to be tailored to you. Mm-hmm. So then when you meet someone who has a different point of view, 
you don't say, oh, that's interesting. Like, why do you think that? Mm-hmm. What you do is you say, you idiot. <laughs> How can you think that? Like, there's yeah. all this stuff on social media that I've seen that tells me mm-hmm. my opinion is correct. While this other person has seen all the stuff on social media that tells them their opinion is correct. Mm. So then people butt heads and nobody talks. Yeah, that's the most important yeah. thing is talking, dude. Just talk, dude. 100%. Yeah. I, I like what you, yeah, you're, you're totally agree. I love that you said the confirmation bias that you just see the, the, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And then suddenly like, oh, by the way, whatever you've been thinking about has, is wrong. Yeah. And what happens now, right? And that's how revolution happens in good and bad is when somebody questions the the edict of the old ways. Yeah. And the status quo. And 100%. I think your art does that. I mean, I love it. Thank you. I find Boeing over here, but I do. I really do. I love it. You're like my first fanboy. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> or the first fanboy I've talked to. And I love that. Uh, I love when you do the balloons. Yeah. You yeah, have a couple of balloons. I like it. I like color. I think you're right. That's what it is. I love color. Balloons are a good way to get a lot of color in. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, exactly. Anyways, Hannah, I love talking to you. But I think at, we're at that time. Before we end, do you have anything to add or any... Actually, you didn't even promote... I don't think you promote your art or your website. So this is your time. Um, yeah, sure. So if anyone wants to see my art, I'm on Instagram under at Brown Girl Art. So come and join the movement. Come and mm-hmm. join the community. Website. Oh, website is, thank you, www.browngirlart.co.uk. Yeah. By the way, check her out. It's amazing. Also, she does custom art, right? Yes, I do. I do commissions as well. Yeah, exactly. Commission. So anyways, yeah. So do you have any more thing to add or are we good? Did we do it? I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for the time. Thank you for setting this up. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. I feel like I've just been talking to one of my friends. Oh, so you. this has been really nice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a good night. And you look after yourself. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. Again, Hannah, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you listeners for listening. This is Aaron Deliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later. <laughs>